0: You're listening to The Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and The Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, we're discussing the controversial abortion law in Texas, which went into effect on Wednesday, September 1st. Now, later that evening, late that evening, the Supreme Court released a 5-4 opinion stating that it would not block the law at this time, but also wouldn't prohibit ongoing legal challenges. It was very clear that it was not weighing in on its constitutionality. Now, in their decision, Richard, the majority wrote that those challenging the law had not made their case in the face of complex and novel procedural questions. And, and those novel procedural questions have to do with, I think the most fascinating part of this case is its penalty structure, because it doesn't permit state officials to enforce the abortion law, which is it's, this law is, is banning abortions in the presence of a heartbeat, usually around six weeks. Instead, the law is allowing anyone in Texas to bring a civil suit against uh, anyone aiding and abetting abortion after the cutoff. So I'd like to get your, your thoughts on, on this unusual enforcement mechanism.
1: Sure. Let me just start with the following illustration. Generally speaking, there's a very sharp difference between public and private enforcement of anything. And what happens is that the public is designed to enforce things that have potential for diffuse harms, even if they don't harm any particular individual. So uh, you could sort of make it illegal to have animals in your house or firecrackers because they could go off and harm anybody else. But generally speaking, ordinary individuals can only move in cases of imminent harm to themselves. In this particular case, the way in which I understand it, is what the state has essentially done is to deputize any citizen within the state, and perhaps even people who are not within the state, in order to bring sanctions against them. Uh, what happens is I gather under this particular bill, uh, if you do this, you're entitled to receive, what's it $10,000 or some right. kind of a bounty, um, so that there's some real stuff. And so what happens is the state has managed to take private individuals who normally would be able to do nothing whatsoever with respect to the suit, and now has given them a strong financial incentive in order to do so, so as to give them standing in effect to do this. Now, what do I think about this? Well, I think there are very many complicated questions that arise, but the way in which I would divide it is in twofold. Do all of these questions arise essentially solely because of the complexities that arise in individual cases, or do the difficulties arise because essentially uh, once you put this particular situation into effect, this law into effect, now all sorts of things are going to happen. I think it's perfectly appropriate for somebody to say, look, we think that a facial challenge is appropriate under these circumstances, namely that it is improper for you to try to delegate enforcement functions to private parties who have no interest other than the one that the state gives them, and that that question could be adjudicated without regard to the complicated procedural issues that take place in any particular suit. So I think, in effect, that the facial challenge is a perfectly sensible one, and I probably would allow the suit to take place. And in um, saying this, I, I want to make it again very, very clear that just like the Supreme Court said, I'm not trying to take in this particular remark a view as to whether or not I think Roe v. Raid is right or wrong. I've already said that. When I was very, very young and a very long time ago, when I was, I guess, under 30, um, I wrote an article in the Supreme Court Review arguing that uh, uh, Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided and that this thing was properly left to the police power of the state. I really have not. I changed my view on that question, uh, but in my view about this is two things have happened. One is that you know it's been going on for close to fifty years, and the issue does that kind of create a right by prescription, a very controversial but not implausible notion. There are many cases where we think exactly that. And two, if you're going to change this, I think what you want to do is to change it in a very explicit fashion by overruling Roe v. Wade, rather than by trying to do these kinds of sneaky circumventions with respect to the thing. Uh, Which I don't give credit to. So, when the whole woman's health case came up, and there were again, I think it was Texas, a bunch of restrictions on the way in which abortions could be conducted, the only question before the court, in my view, was whether or not, given that Roe v. Wade was right, with these undue burdens on the opportunity of a woman and her physician to take care of people, and I came down with the position that it was an undue burden under those circumstances, because the kinds of restrictions that you put in place for abortions were much more serious than those for comparable surgical. Procedures and it was designed to thin out the number of places within the state where abortions could be ordered. This does not mean that I supported Roe. You know, Roe v. Wade. It meant, in effect, I didn't want the indirect stuff from going on, and that I think Tom is exactly what's happened here. Uh, so uh, I would basically do this the other way on this particular question, and I think I would probably, on the merits, strike it down because I don't think it's appropriate. And I think it's a very dangerous precedent to try to create a nation of bounty hunters by saying to anybody, you can interfere in anybody else's life. Um, we'll give you $10,000 if it turns out that you succeed. Um, do we really want to do that if, for example, there's somebody else who decides to use pornography in their home, and what we'll do is say, oh, it's illegal to do it for children, and we'll give people a bounty of $10,000. If people have that bounty, they'll start snooping and investigating and all the rest of the stuff. And generally speaking, you're going to have to subject them to all sorts of restrictions that are appropriate to the state, But these are every person in the country being subject to public restriction is not anything other than an enforcement nightmare. So I am kind of unhappy about the way in which this thing has evolved. Uh, But I want to, again, repeat, this is not because I'm in favor of Roe v. Wade. It's despite the fact that I'm in favor of Roe v. Wade that I think the methods are very questionable.
0: Well, I want to know what else you could do with this penalty structure, because it does seem like a dangerous precedent, uh, maybe in other states. I mean, could a state, for example, uh, mandate vaccines for everyone, but outsource enforcement to civil suits for those who don't enforce them? Or uh, could a state allow civil suits against people? I I guess they could say, let's ban gun ownership and we're not going to enforce it, but we're going to allow
1: other people to sue, maybe especially if gun violence occurs. I mean, how does this end? Well, the answer is it doesn't. And that's why, in effect, what you have to do is to be extremely careful. And there's an old maxim which generally says you must, uh, the presumption is against the delegation of public force to private parties. Now, it's one thing to man a posse under the supervision of a sheriff and so forth to control order in the Wild West. Uh, but in this case, you don't have the sheriff, you just have the posse. And so I think it's just a very, very bad kind of scheme. And the examples that you give, I think, are perfectly appropriate. The whole question with respect to vaccines, I think, has gotten completely out of control now. Um, it turns out people are becoming more and more insistent upon their use as the evidence about their effectiveness seems to get somewhat weaker and weaker. I think somebody really has to think about that. But right now, the way in which you have to think about it is not with respect to public enforcement. The real problem in many of these cases is all sorts of private institutions have taken it upon themselves to make um, admissions to their particular facilities dependent upon positive vaccine status without taking into account the question that many people may have natural immunities, which seem to be even more effective. I don't want this kind of situation taking place. I'm very uneasy about those things happening. And I certainly don't want it to be compounded by saying, and in effect, if you have a university that doesn't require vaccines for its students to come in, somebody can sue and collect $10,000 for each non-vaccinated person who calls into those ivy walls. I just do not like that kind of kind of stuff. And this is what happens. This happened elsewhere. If you think back to the affirmative action debate, um, you know, my view about affirmative action is by and large, I think public institutions should be able to do it to the same extent as private institutions. And I'm not always happy about the result, but that I think is the situation. So you ban affirmative action. And then what people do is they just invent a fake around and they say, oh, we'll just take the top 10% of every class, knowing that they're doing it for one reason and one reason only. And again, it's just a funny circumvention. What you really have to do is to ask whether or not Justice Roberts was right on um, when he says that nobody should be allowed to have affirmative action programs in either public or private body. I actually, you know, on this one think that affirmative action programs in educational programs is perfectly appropriate. But when it comes to traditional state enforcement situations, I take exactly the opposite view. I can't imagine how somebody can say, Well, we'll have one criminal law burglary for black people and another criminal law for burglary for white people. so I think, in effect, distributions of public benefits are subject to greater variety than are impositions of crime. But it's again, it's the same point. I'll just end on this. If you don't want, if you don't like a statute or you don't like a ruling, overrule it. You don't want to sit there. Shipping away at it with procedures which are inappropriate in the particular case and could easily leach out and be used in all sorts of other consequences in other contexts where the consequences could turn quite quite ugly quite soon. So I agree with the way in which you put the particular point.
0: Well, let's talk about the, the constitutional issues in this case, because it seems to me that there might be two. One, uh, the established Roe precedent on pre-viability abortions. I mean, this is saying heartbeat, anything after is, is not allowed. And then, uh, and then there's this, this uh, odd enforcement mechanism. Do you think that this case is going to have more of a, well, Is it more of a direct challenge to Roe, or do you think the Dobbs case in Mississippi being, I think, argued this fall
1: is, is where we're going to see action? Well, you may see it with respect to Dobbs, but Dobbs essentially said what we're doing is we're basically privileging the first 15 weeks in which we don't allow the attack to take place, uh, which is roughly in line with the notion that you had in Roe v. Wade that the world was divided into trimesters. And in the first trimester, the woman had complete control. In the third trimester, the state had lots of power. And in the middle trimester, it was a little bit of this and a little bit of that having to do with the undue burden test, right? But this case is going in six weeks. Now, what they're doing is they're switching to detection of life, i.e. a heartbeat, from what was the earlier supposed test having to do with viability. Now, viability was always a very uneasy test because, you know, the age for viability continues to go down. Now it's roughly about 25 or 26 weeks, at least in some cases, whereas in 1973, it was probably 30 or 31 weeks. Uh, I don't like standards like that, which is why I didn't like row against Wade. Uh, so here, I guess, if you want my basic opinion, um, I don't remember whether it's from Romeo and Juliet or some other play Uh, from other play but a plague on both your houses strikes me as being the way in which it's gone that people are so extreme on both sides now what should be done is new york state has already passed the statute Um, which I might have voted against, but at least they passed it, saying, in effect, the laws that existed under Roe v. Wade continues to be the law of this state, and we're doing it by legislative announcement. I actually think that's a much cleaner solution. I think it should be done at the state level. Am I wrong, or did Nancy Pelosi try to say that we ought to do something about this at the congressional level, which, again, I think would be a real mistake. I think state variation on this has always been the rule, and I don't think we want to sort of get rid of that now, but who knows what's going to happen.
0: So other uh, heartbeat bills have failed, but now we have six Republican-appointed justices, and this uh, this 5-4 opinion was five of them, and, and Chief Justice Roberts was in the, the dissent. Mm-hmm. Do you think this indicates how we're going to see this, this ruled in the fall? Do you think, uh, and by the way, do you think Supreme Court is maybe nudging Congress or, I guess like you said, state governments to legislate this instead of rely on Legal, long-standing legal doctrine
1: well, I mean this is one of the oldest battles that you have in the history of constitutional law. If you are somebody who is a devout originalist and you look at these things and you realize quite truthfully in this particular case uh, that there is not a shred of evidence that supports the view that in nineteen seventy two no place held abortions to be legal, and in 1973, they become legal everywhere um, because of a judicial decision which is in search of a rationale, um, which was never supplied by Harry Blackman on any one of a number of dimensions. So those people who are sort of textualists, they will rightly be completely unforgiving of what has happened in this state. They said it was a doctrinal abomination when it was passed, and the passage of time does not change anything about the legitimacy of the decision. And, you know, that's a respectable position. And I think there are people on the Supreme Court who actually hold it. But then there's always the other view, which I called in my book, the classical liberal constitution, uh, the so-called prescriptive constitution, which is that uh, certain practices are very dubious when they start, uh, but they are established by long usage so that after 50 years or 100 years, whatever the number is, that which was unthinkable becomes fully protected. Is this an important doctrine, Don? Sure it is. If I were to tell you the number of decisions that are flatly inconsistent, in my view, with the original constitutional text, um, it would be pretty impressive. It would include Marbury and Madison, at least to the extent that it talks about judicial supremacy. I don't think there's a shred of evidence for that in the original constitution. What the case was really about was whether or not the legislature could force the court to take cases that didn't fall within its jurisdiction under Article 3, to which the answer, and it was involved in that case, should have been... No, so, very different. Uh- can the federal courts overrule state decisions that essentially invalidate federal constitutional law? The original structure of Texan balances wanted that power to be reserved to the judges in the individual states. And the Supreme Court could be systematically by Congress denied hearing. And there was no appellate jurisdiction that allowed you to move from the state court system to the federal court system. And then Martin against Hunter Lessees comes along about 30 years after the Constitution is written. And Justice Story looks at this thing and says, you know, This constitution will not survive if it turns out that the constitutionality of federal legislation is going to be decided by the judges in 22 different states, all coming out in different ways. So I'm basically going to make the federal government have complete power over this. And, you know, he was right. As my daddy used to tell me all the time, sometimes the state of the world is so bad uh, that you have to learn to rise above principle in order to make sure that things don't go off the rails. And that was the case. Nobody wants to overrule that precedent today. Can you sue a corporation in federal court under what's called diversity jurisdiction? Perfectly clear in the original constitution the answer was no. Uh, Corporations couldn't be citizens. By the time you get to 1855, it's yes. It's been now, you know, about 175 years. Does anybody want to overrule that decision? Not on your life. Well, does Roe fall into that category? And the answer is not really. It's a very different kind of decisions. It's not structural. It doesn't basically say whether federalism is going to succeed or fail. It's a substantive decision. But other people said people have come to rely on it. It's become part of our fixture. Uh, most people are very comfortable with Roe as a constitutional decision, even though most people are actually thinking that abortion is immoral in some way, shape, or form. So you get the constant tension between these two schools. Now, which way did the Supreme Court has come out? Well, that's anybody's guess. I think it's pretty clear that Roberts would never vote to overrule this decision, which is why he's with the four. If you start looking at the other five, Frankly, my dear, I really don't know which way they are thinking about all of this stuff. Everything that they've done as lower court judges is beside the point because now it is that you're basically at the top and there's nobody in the system who could overturn you. So I think it's probably better than even chance that Roe will go. I also think that the legislative response will be... uh, Polarizing. If there are 12 states who are passing laws like the one in Texas, there'll be another 12 states or more that will pass statutes the way the New York statute is. And so what you're going to see is this constant tension taking place. And you'll see a polarized government in some states this way, in some states that way. And there'll be the question. There was an old case you know, called Cosgrove and Gleitman in which the question was whether or not a doctor was under duty to tell a patient who had a child with German measles, she could get a legal abortion in another state. And these interstate questions are going to arise over and over again. And it's going to be a real nightmare to try to sort them out. Uh, what's the political price on this? My guess is that uh, people will vote their, as it were, their political predilections, and that if they overturn Roe, it will hurt the Republican cause in a political situation because it will take people who are essentially relatively conservative and market-oriented on economic affairs and more liberal with respect to social affairs like abortion and force them to choose between their two principles. Most people generally will vote their moral principles before their economic principles. So I think, in effect, it will be a rough time for the Republicans under these circumstances. But this is, you know, this is new territory. I'm just giving one man's opinion. Uh, how much confidence do I have in it? Well, to quote the various things that you see in the climate reports, this is not a prediction of very high confidence. I would say I have medium confidence in these particular results, which means that I think I'll be wrong probably 30 to 40% of the time. How is that for somebody who's extremely emphatic?
0: That's well, you know what, we'll check in the fall and we'll, we'll see how your predictions go. Okay. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on Defining Ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed our conversation, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit
1: hoover.org.